0: This time, without any further ado from me, I'd like to uh, introduce our first speaker this evening, and that would be Dave D. from Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Dave Doss. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank the the group and and Mike and Kathy for, for, for asking me up here. You know, it's always a, a privilege and an honor to be asked to, to come somewhere and do something like this um and, and to be quite honest um for me it, it reminds me just how powerful god in this program is because there was a time when i absolutely was convinced that i would not get this thing you know and now i have the opportunity to stand up here tonight and share with you what my life has been like the last 12 and a half years because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 12 steps in the relationship that I have with
1: God that you all have introduced me to, and, and since this is supposed to be a you know quote
0: unquote retreat, um, I'd really like to try to focus on on spirituality, on God, on, on, on that which is the core of our program. Um, the core of my disease is one word: powerlessness. That's the core of my disease, and the core of anonymous, and the core of the solution to that is the power. Um, I try to make no bones about it. I'll tell you a little bit about how I wound up to the point where I was convinced, my innermost self, that I was powerless. And, but the best way, that I, I know to do that is first to convince you, why does someone go to the extremes that I went to to continue to drink? You already know that. But um, I don't want this to be a blow-by-blow blow description of my, of my drinking, but I think it's important that I, I paint the picture of the magic that alcohol does for me. Um, without that magic, I don't believe I'd be standing in this room. That I, I don't believe that I'd be an alcoholic. I believe that I'd be a social drinker who maybe got in some trouble and, you know, quit or moderated or, you know, did the about-face and drinking like a gentleman now. But that's not my story. Um, the first time I, I had my, my, my real, I don't know, my real epiphany, my real, you know, the real magic that alcohol did for me, I was about 13 years old and uh, I, I had grown up without a dad my dad had got killed in vietnam and uh that's not why i'm an alcoholic it's just part of you know part of my story part of the ism maybe somehow but uh, i grew up without a whole lot of, of male role models in my life the, the men in my family typically come from a, a blue blue collar hard-working background and most of the men in my family worked all the time and the women raised the children that was sort of the way things were broken up and so the men would always work in two jobs and the women were taking care of the kids. And uh, that's pretty much the way it was in my family. So the men were never around. And I grew up watching the movies with the tough guys, the John Leans and the Clint Eastwoods, you know, and the Charles Bronsons, you know? And and, and those were my heroes, you know? And those guys would walk into a bar and they'd order whiskey and they'd drink it straight down and they'd either punch or shoot the guy next to them. (laughs) And so, uh, and so this was kind of my idea, you know, and, and at 13 years old, there's nothing more in the world that a 13 year old boy wants to be than a man, you know, and, uh, and so this is sort of what I'm bringing to the table. And I, I went to work, uh, that summer of my uh, 13 years old, summer between eighth and ninth grade, um, in a place called pig town in Baltimore. And it, and it's sort of on the, on the west side of Baltimore and it's about as blue collar as you can get borderline white trash. You know, and uh, the guys that, that, that I worked with loading trucks in this in this warehouse in Pigtown fit the bill of the John Wayne Clint Wood tough guy type. I mean, they they were exciting to be around, you know, because they cussed and they drank and every now and again, one of them would hit the other one just for the hell of it, you know. And, and, and there was nothing more that I liked than sort of being around, you know, these real men. And, uh, my mom used to take me up and drop me off to work every day. And then she, you know, and, and, and one weekend, these guys were going down to Richmond, Virginia to do a big job. And they were going to move out a a house full of furniture. And it was a great big job. And they were trying to get anybody that they could get to go help them. And I asked my mom if, if I could go. And she said, reluctantly said, yes, you know, and uh, she sent me down to Richmond with these guys. And, uh, you know, I worked as hard as I could that first day we were down there and, uh, it was one of those days, you know, where it was 99 degrees and 99% humidity, and at the end of the day, we're all drenched in our own sweat, and we worked hard. And, you know, I was 5 foot tall and 110 pounds, but I had worked as hard as I could that day. And um, I'll never forget it. it was, we were working and uh, unloading the, the furniture out of this this big penthouse apartment in Richmond, and it was one of these ones that had, you know, the 12-foot ceilings and had these great big 10-foot you know, windows that overlooked the city of Richmond, and it was beautiful. And at the end of the day, um, we had unloaded about half of the library of you know, this penthouse, and most of the books were in boxes. And there was a group of the guys that I was working with. They were sitting around, looking out over one of these, you know, tall, picturesque windows um, over the city of Richmond. At the end of a hard day, it was like, it was like a it was like a Budweiser commercial. It really was. <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, I mean I smell a beer. But anyway, um, it's been a while, you
1: know,
0: and. Uh, and I'm kind of standing on the wall, and these guys have pulled their boxes into a little half circle, and they're looking at the city of Richmond. And I, I must have had that look like a newcomer has at the coffee pot, you know, where you got the old-timers standing off, and they're in a little circle on the side, and the newcomers kind of standing over, like, please invite me in, please invite me in. And I had that same look, and, and one of the guys caught my eye, and he, and he motioned me over, and I kind of walked over sheepishly to him, and he said, you've done the work of a man today, and he, and he took out there 16, these 16 16-ounce Budweiser cans, and they were ice cold in they were so cold, the, the, the little beads of condensation were running down the outside of the can. And he, and he handed me that 16-ounce bottle out of the can, and he said, you've done the work of a man today. Have a drink with us today. Now, I didn't take that drink because I'm an alcoholic. I took that drink because more than anything in the world, this 13-year-old boy wanted to be a man, and I wanted to fit in. And I pulled up my little box in my little half circle there, and I sat down in the box, and I proceeded to drink with the men. And, and that in itself, Was was almost a spiritual experience, you know, just because just being invited to drink with the men. I mean, you know, my other little buddies were out riding their bikes and playing baseball, and then here I am, man. I'm in Richmond, Virginia, by myself, working with the men, drinking, looking out over the city of Richmond. And uh, and I watched how they drank because I didn't want to. I didn't want to be a lightweight, you know. I I wanted to drink like the men. And so when they got their sixteen ounce first one down, they crumbled it up, threw it off to the side, and got another one. And I got my 16 one down shortly thereafter, because I didn't want to be behind. And I tried to crumble it up, cut
1: my hand, <laughs> throw it away,
0: and they gave me another one. And the magic happened about 24 ounces into my into my drinking experience in Richmond. And see what alcohol does for me is it animates me. I am not really a, a sort of quiet, you know, reserved, you know, introvert when I drink, man. It just it just animates me. I'm an action drunk. And I got about 24 ounces of that Budweiser in me, a 5 foot tall and 110 pounds, and I just stood up. You know? I just And I didn't know what I was standing up for, and they were all looking at me wondering why I was standing up, and I walked into a circle and I said, let's go. And they all looked at me like, what? And I said, let's go. It's boring. I'm sitting here looking out this window. And they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. Let's go get something to eat or whatever, but we're going to drink some more, aren't we? And they said, all right. You
1: know? And
0: you know, so what, what alcohol did for me is it took me from being on the outside of the circle to being the leader of men, you know, and 24 ounces. And in 24 ounces, when I stood up, you know, I went from being 5 foot tall and 110 pounds with pimples and, and braces and, to being a, a 6 foot 2, 240 pound man. You know, it was just that magic. Just that man. Alcohol just put me together, you know, just stood solid. And, and it just, it gave me a feeling like I had never had before. And Keith Lewis talked about um, talks about his first drink, and he, he talked about he spent the rest of his life trying to get back to the way he felt that first, that first time. It really did the magic. And that's, that's true for me. You know, I, I continued to drink to try to get back to Richmond. You know, that was my mission, man, to get back the way I felt. When that 24 ounces, and I was right there, man. And it just put me together and it did the magic. And, uh, but I had this problem. I never seemed to really be able to hit the mark. I'd kind of be sneaking up on the mark, sneaking up on the mark, and then I'd overshoot it. And I, you know, and I'd be passed out or in a blackout, you know. And that night was pretty much the way my drinking went. I drank as much as I could get a hold of. At some point in the night, I went into one of these things called a blackout, which I just assumed everybody had. And I just assumed that's part of learning how to drink. Is you know. You, you, you don't really know when you should stop and, and you just kind of go a little too far and you go into what of think called a blackout. Next time it, you'll try to stop before you get there, you know, overshooting that mark thing problem again, you know, and um, and the rest of my drinking from, I was 13 then and I got sober June 23rd of 1990. I was 22 years old when I got sober. So really for the next nine years, um, I was trying to get back to Richmond and I was trying to desperately not to overshoot the mark and uh you know our big book talks about all the different schemes that we employ to try to manage and control our drinking and uh, and, and i tried all this you know I, I tried beer only i tried you know i tried liquor only i tried you know eating drinking drinking on a full stomach you know i even threw some drugs in to see if that would help you know i mean it really doesn't help a whole lot I just drink longer you know it just kind of drags it all out you know And it's more expensive than alcohol, so it makes you poor and it lasts longer. It's really a bad combination. I don't recommend it to anyone. Um, And in that that nine years, um, what happened is, is, you know, when I first started drinking and and started doing that magic at 13 years old, I had hopes and dreams. For a little guy, man, I had some dignity and some self-respect. I mean, I was gonna be the first guy in my blue collar family to get a college education and I was absolutely positive that I would do it. I knew I was smart enough. And I knew I'd have the opportunity and I was willing to work hard enough to do it because I was taught those things. I was taught enough hard work paying off. I was taught about the value of an education. I watched my mom put herself through college part time. You know, while she was raising me. You know, I was I was raised with these values. Uh, most of the most of the men in my family didn't drink. Most of the people in my family didn't drink. Except my there's my Father's, my father has been killed, of course, but his father was in AA. Now, he was a little suspicious. Because <laughs> I had heard some stories about him. And I had actually even kind of grew up around AA. I mean, I was one of these little kids running around, four or five years old. because when I'd go over to their house and he would have me, he'd just take me with him wherever he went. You know, and I went fishing with these old guys that were in AA. And, you know, I walked around these meetings when I was a kid. So, my experience with the was it worked, um, but it was for really, really bad drunks, you know? I mean, these guys were bad, and they were old. I mean, they were really old. And
1: um,
0: and, they, and, they, and I knew that they, it was really weird because my grandpa had this sticker that said one day at a time, and he'd talk in these 24-hour riddles and all that, but, like, like, like we went fishing with guys. And my grandfather was in his sober, like, I think he was sober less than 15 years when he died. At 68, so he kind of started late in life. But there were guys that we went fishing with that were sober like 20 and 30 years. And so he had talked in his real weird 24-hour riddles, but it seemed to me like these guys were like about doing this the rest of their life, you know. And um, so that was sort of my, my background with AA. And, and um, I, I started probably trying to control my drinking at about, um, about 16 years old. You know, because I wasn't five foot tall and 110 pounds anymore. My blackout, that was becoming, you know, our book talks about a Jekyll and Hyde drinker. You know, it talks about, now, what about the real alcoholic? You know, maybe one of the finest sellers you know, but let him drink for a day or two, and he becomes more or less insanely drunk, dangerously antisocial. And that described me as 16 years old. You know, and that's when people started stepping in. You know, I mean, that's when I really started noticing that that, that my friends were changing, you know. The guys that I, I went to went to grade school and middle school with, and the guys that were the good kids in the class, you know, all of a sudden they were kind of on the back burner, and the, the, the bad kids were now, you know, were front and center. And you know, and I, I, my mom let me drive a car when I was 16, so now I had transportation, you know, and uh, and I had the had the ability to, to, to drive around and find people to get us booze, you know, and I, and I and I found out right away, man, and drinking and driving. You know, it's like a sport. You know, it's, it's you know, it, you know, it, it's it's a pastime. I mean, that's like that's where the action's at. You drink and you drive and you go places and do things. And um, you know, I, I look back in hindsight now and just I'm so glad that you know, whole carload of kids didn't get didn't get killed. Because man, we would pop. I had a 1980 Chevy Chevette that I was driving, and we would pile that car up with six or seven people. Man, put the hatch down and they would be wedged in there. And, Tearing down the road, you know, and, and just drinking like fish, and uh, and the, the other thing that kind of got my attention um, right about that time was uh, you know, the real violence. You know, I started getting into fights, and I, I wasn't I wasn't really a violent guy. And uh, by the time I was eighteen, um, I had sort of moved up a little bit further in terms of, of size and weight and. Uh, you know, I was a varsity athlete in a couple of sports, and I was the strongest guy in my high school, and I was, you know, a good bit bigger and stronger than I am now. Um, and, you know, when I got drunk and got violent, it, it wasn't a whole lot of fun anymore for the people around me, you know, and I started really getting people just flat out abandoning me as friends, the people that I knew my whole life that just wouldn't hang around me, and, uh, um, one of the other things that sort of got my attention is, is when I was 16, my, my mom remarried right about the time I was 16, and, and she married one of the big town truck drivers that I was working with at the time. And and uh, my mom's an alcoholic, and that guy, she isn't drinking. I'd like to say that she has a program, but unfortunately she hasn't really invested the time and the effort into alcohol anonymous and a lot of her life today, even she's not drinking, is run, run on fear. And, and, and I, I hate to see it, but I like to make that point, because when I say that she's sober, I want to make the difference tonight between what a life is like without drinking, and what a life is like with the 12 substance program. There's a big difference. Um, and you know, she married one of those truck drivers, and and she brought him home, and they they like to drink a lot. And uh, I don't I don't know whether he's an alcoholic or not. He sure looks an awful lot like us. Um, and there would be a lot of violence in our in our house, and not always he wouldn't always start it, but somebody would start it, and and people would get hit and be holding all. and. I walked out of the house at 16 years old and said, I'm not going to live this way. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was graduating from high school on stage. I was a top male student in my graduating class. And we told I was a varsity athlete. And you know, I was dating a pretty little cheerleader. And um, you know, I beat that girl up in, in front of 200 people at a graduation party. And for us I was graduate, on stage with honors. You know, what do you, what do you say to someone the next day when that happens? You know, what, how, do, how do you even go about trying to justify and rationalize that in your own, in your in your own soul, you know, and that's really where I knew something was seriously, seriously wrong because um, there were principles that I was raised with, and I've always been the kind of guy, and I, I like to think that I'm largely that way in AA—not perfectly, but largely—that I, I really haven't always cared a whole lot of what you thought. You know, and i just maybe I'm just too damn self-centered to care. I don't know, but 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 the truth of the matter is, I've never really cared a whole lot of what other people thought about me. I don't say I don't care at all—not a whole lot—and. Uh, you know, people started talking to me about my drinking long before I beat that girl up blackout um, in front of all those guys and, and, and girls that I had grown up with and, been, you know, spent, spent most of my time with my whole life. And, uh, you know, and I knew that there was something definitely wrong on the inside with that. That was not me. I don't know who that guy was, but it was not me. Because when I walked out of that house when I was 16 years old, because I was tired of seeing the violence, you know what I said? I'll never be like him. I'll never be like him. And, and I knew I wouldn't be. Well, I knew I wouldn't be because I wasn't built that way on the inside. And what I found out later is that there is absolutely nothing that I cannot or will not do uh, when I'm drinking. There, no there is no line I will not cross. And as my, as my simple human dignity and my self-respect was eroded away, and I like to use the analogy of, um, you know, my alcoholism was like was like the waves on a on a beach at the ocean. You know, and and I was right up on the shoreline, and I'd take a stick and I'd draw a line in the sand, and I'd say, damn it, I'm not going to do that. And the waves of my alcoholism would come down and crash from the shore and they would just wipe that, that line clean like it had never been there. And I'd take a step or two back and I'd draw another line in the sand and say, well, I did that, but I'm never going to do that. And the waves of my alcoholism would come crashing down and they would wipe out that line until eventually there, there was no beach left. Until eventually I knew that uh, I was just standing in the middle of the ocean there was nothing that I wouldn't do, including murder. And, uh, and that's a hell of a place to be. And it seemed like the more that I would lose of my simple human dignity, and my self-respect, the more I would, the more I would lose that soul that I believe that, that, that God gives all of us um, as children—a pure, clean soul—the ties between us and Him. That you know, we begin to build the the wall, you know, block by block, and and by the time that I got to you at 19, that that wall was pretty high and pretty thick already. Um, a lot has to happen for you know for a guy who who feels like he's really going places and, and doing well a year before um, to wind up walking into Alcoholics Anonymous a year later. You know, when I graduated high school, I kind of told you what had happened, but on the outside, things were still looking really good. And, uh, but within a year after walking out of high school, my life was totally consumed by fear. Uh, I looked in the mirror and didn't recognize the guy that I saw. Anymore. Um, you know, I was raised by good hard work and decent people. I was taught about honesty and hard work and I was shown integrity in the I had shining examples and have shining examples of how to be a good human being long before I came down. And I just couldn't seem to be like people like my grandfather and my grandmother. You know, even my mother just you know, dis- displayed incredible acts of courage as I see it now you know, when I was a child. Take on raising a, a two-year-old in, in, in the 70s when you know, women, women didn't do that a whole lot. There were a whole lot of career women. There were a whole lot of women taken on. It would have been easy for her to move in with her parents or get another husband. She didn't do that. She took on a big job. You know, she did the best she could. I think she did a pretty good job. I wouldn't want to trade places with her, that's for sure. Um, and, and so some of what I'm talking about here is, is my past in, in hindsight and in perspective has been gained through doing a fourth and the fifth step, through taking my inventory and through seeing really, you know, how things really were not, not my twisted perceptions when I got here to what y'all have really given me is the ability to change my past and see the value of things that have happened good and bad um, relationship with God and, and um, I, at 19 years old when I, when I thought about coming to alcohol the reason that I, that I that I came here is because I stood in front of the mirror and didn't recognize the guy that I saw anymore with a gun in my mouth and the hammer in the back of my finger on the trigger and I wanted to die not really because I wanted to die but just because I didn't know how to live you know, our big book talks about coming to a jumping off place where you can't imagine life with alpha line anymore and you can't imagine life without it you know it talks about knowing loneliness as you do and i believe that was really one of my one of my first sort of sort of internal bottoms where i, where I looked in the, into that mirror and I, the eyes that i saw were the eyes of, of a man who was, who, was, who was losing his soul it you know, was just being stripped and, and i knew i could feel it I could just feel it, it, was, it being, my life was being taken from me. Uh, and I didn't have the courage to pull the trigger and be done with it. And that's a hell of a place to be. I didn't have an answer. I knew I had a problem, and I didn't have an answer. And the thought came to me you know, that maybe I ought to try alcoholism. You know, and um, and that was that was all I had left. I mean, I I was raised in the church, and um, I don't have a, a horror story from the church. I I wasn't taught about punishing, damning God. You know, if anything, I was always raised with a with a father image of God. My father was, you know, by all accounts a uh, pretty decent guy. And, you know, I was taught from the time I can remember that, you know, when he died he went up with God and he was kinda of looking out for me. And my dad was up there looking out for me. He wouldn't let anything happened to me. And kind uh, of believe that's the way it is. And, uh, but somewhere in in the teenage years I began to do things that I believe made me too bad or set me apart from uh, that idea of God. And I knew that my father wouldn't be proud of me for the things that I was doing and the places I was going and the people that I was hurting. And so I knew that if my father wouldn't be proud of me, then God wouldn't be proud of me. And if they weren't proud of me, then they probably wouldn't help me. And uh, so somewhere along the age of 13, 14, I just stopped going to church one day. And I didn't go back. And so even though the church had, had been a part of my life, and God had been a part of my life, He wasn't part of the answer. And uh, I've been, you know, sort of, sort of raised, you know, it seemed like almost with the, with the psychiatric profession trying to help me, you know, uh, long before I took a drink, man. They were shoving inkblots in front of me asking me what I saw. You know, it was, it was, very, it was very clear there was something wrong with me besides alcohol. And, uh, you know, and, and I had seen those people on and off for my whole life up to the point I was 19 years old, and, and they didn't seem to be able to help me. I knew my family loved me and would do anything in the world for me and, and they couldn't seem to help me. I was just thinking deeper and deeper. And, uh, you know, and I thought it's maybe I ought to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I you know, I walked in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was twenty years younger than anyone else in there. I was nineteen years old, legal drinking age at the time, in the state of Maryland I was twenty one. You uh, know, I wasn't even legal drinking age yet. Boy, that's a that's a good identifier out, isn't it? I'm not even old enough to drink, you know. And uh A guy pulled me up after the meeting, he said, Dave, he said, I don't know if you're an alcoholic or not, son, he said, I promise you one thing. If you're an alcoholic and you keep drinking, it'll get worse and you will die.
1: That was
0: the first time somebody had really talked to me about the progressive and the fatal nature of the disease. Um, And I hadn't, you know, at that time I hadn't seen a lot of people around me die. I was 19 and and most of the guys that were even hitting it pretty hard and even the ones that were were doing some pretty heavy stuff, um, they weren't getting dead yet. They got dead later on, um, but they weren't getting dead yet. You know, and, and what happened, that started about a period of, of three and a half years in and out of the program of alcohol and gone. In three and a half years, I tell you what, there is nothing more miserable than coming in and out of the program of alcohols gone. Because, you know, you, you no longer have a home. You no longer have a home when you get to that point. You, you don't feel at home in the bar because you've already been to AA. And, and if you've seen one happy person there, if you've seen one person that seems to have sobriety and be, be happy, happy and at peace about it, it's ruined your drink you um, and you walk into the bar and you don't you don't sit there and 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 then you come into aA and and here you know, the first couple tries you know I kept telling myself well okay it'll be different next time and then you, if you come in out of a long enough you just become convinced that you're not going to make it here either you know and, and that's a hell of a place to be you know where you're you're, you're no longer fit out there in the, in the bars and in the drinking life and God you don't make it in AA. You're just hopeless. And hopeless. in those three and a half years, I really, uh, I really became convinced that I, I was not only powerless but hopeless. And uh, you know, the worst part about that in and out is um, not only what it does to, to us on the inside, and whatever little bit of a soul that I had when I got here to at 19, by the time I I came back and stayed at 22, it was completely stripped. There was nothing. Left. There was absolutely nothing left but a shell of a broken human being. And, uh, it's not so much what we do to ourselves, but what's even worse is what we do to the people that love us when we come in and out of that And to see the hopelessness in the people that love us, you know, When you make the promise one more time, it's going to be different. And then they don't believe it anymore. you anymore. Know, and you stop making the promise because you know it's not going to be different. And what happened was the last two weeks of my drinking, um, I wound up locked up for assault and battery, which was no big deal. I was one of those bright lights, you know, fast car action kind of drinkers, you know. You do that and wind up in fights and things happen and you go to jail, no big deal. I wound up wrecking another car, no big deal. And things had happened before. You know, I've been in more than 100 mile an hour car accident. And, uh, you know, it's just, those things happen. And uh, I had a girl at the time, and I was sort of one of my, I kind of had had used up my high school sweetheart and I was working with number two and it looked just like her. And I, I was moving on to number two, and I was about halfway through that one, and she was looking at me with the same tears that the first one used to have in her eyes, and her finger in my chest saying, You know, I wish I never would have met you, SOB, you'll never change. And those words she's echoed in my ear, never change. And I thought, You know, you're right. I, I was absolutely convinced that I would not make it, that I was going to be one of those unfortunates. You know? And that it, uh, it, 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 at any luck, hopefully, it wouldn't take too long, and, and, and it wouldn't hurt too bad um, when it would be over. Last thing that happened was I got in a fight with a guy, and, and he caved the side of my head on a concrete pole um, in an apartment garage in Baltimore City. And I came to um, with the whole side of my head smashed in, blood coming out of my ears, and I uh, strapped down. Uh, my grandfather at the time was holding my hand, my mother's father, uh, who I had lived with, and never drank. Uh, I looked up at him, and uh, I looked up at him, and I asked him, "Am I going to die?" because I was a, an action drunk. And I've been to the hospital a lot of times. And I've been banged up and busted up and stitched up. But I knew this time was different. I could feel the light. It was fading away. It was cold. And it was dark. And I was scared like I've never been scared before since. And I knew the answer when my tear ran down my grandfather's cheek and his hand began to shake in mine. And I heard a man say once in alcohol synonymous, a diamond, don't pray, diamond, please. And I pleaded to this God that I didn't believe would help me, this God that it seemed like I was just so far away from to try to reach through the darkness and give me another chance, to so try to reach through the darkness and make my life count for something. And, you know, I didn't get the bright light, Bill Wilson, you know, mountaintop Top experience, you know. Um, I got a priest praying over me the next time I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, blood still coming out of my ears and still not knowing whether I'll ever die. By now, half my body had become paralyzed. I was covered in my own vomit. And I'm thinking, i laying there, thinking, so this is it. This is how I wind up. This is what paralysis is. And I can remember thinking that this is what paralysis is. I, who have thought so well of my plans in AA, that I'll beat it. Somehow I won't have to do with the people that I see that have to do. I won't have to take it through the extremes of the action that they, that they seem to have to take. I'm a little smarter and a little brighter, and I'm not that bad yet. And somehow, and for me, I'm not that bad yet to being so bad that I was hopeless. And the next day, uh, the guy that you're gonna hear speak here in a little while, walked into a hospital, on June 23rd of 1990. And he walked in the room and I saw the compassion come over his face, and it wasn't for the tubes and the hoses that were shoved in me, it wasn't for the side of my head smashed in and the blood still trickling out of my ear. It wasn't for any of that. I know what it was because I've seen it. Not a whole lot of people. But very few. From time to time I'll see a person who winds up in alcoholics anonymous or I'll go on a 12-step call and I look into the eyes and there's a loss of soul. There's nothing but pain and emptiness. There's just nothing left inside. And I know that's what he saw that day. And he walked there and he took his hand and he put it on my shoulder and he said, David, I'll never have to be this way again. And it was June 23rd 1990. And it hasn't been that way from that day to
1: this. And
0: something happened that day. Uh, you know, he was sober nine years when he walked in that hospital room. And I'm sure he had plenty of things planned that day when he got the call to come. And, the call. and I, I always like to remember that now that I'm sober three years longer than he was. But even though I have a busy life, that when that call comes, when Alcoholics Anonymous reaches out and says, we need help, I'm responsible no matter what's going on uh, what that started was 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 you know 12 years of a fairy tale man it doesn't mean that my life hasn't been you know it's not it doesn't mean it's not life but when you look at where my life is today and I'm going to tell you where from from where it came it just it doesn't happen you know, if you were to walk up to someone and say, okay, here's this guy, what do you think the odds would be that 12 years later, he'll be here? You know, you walk into someone who's analytical, someone who's a professional, maybe someone who deals with, in the field of alcoholism, and then I say, okay, 12 years, let's say, okay, first of all, there's probably only about a couple percent of them that are even going to make it through the first 30 days, like this guy, you know. But that knocked it way down right there and by the time you hit a couple years we'll knock out another half of them by the time you hit five years knock out another half of them you know by the time you get down there without god if you don't have god in the equation you've got a better shot at hitting the
1: lottery
0: <laughs> i uh i heard a speaker say one time that if you see a turtle on a fence post you can bet it had help
1: <laughs> you, know?
0: you can bet it had help and what i feel like staying up here tonight is a, is a turtle on a fence post <laughs> to the outside world, to you all I'm just another drunk. To you all I'm just another example of this program works day in and day out, like it always does. But to the outside world they go, okay, now let me get this straight. You were paralyzed, laying in the bed, your brain was scrambled, you're gun carrying, drug dealing, bum, and now you're here. Hmm. How does that happen? And you know, so that's what I brought to you June twenty third and 19th. Completely you know, stripped spiritually. I mean, that's really what I want to talk about here. Um, Absolutely convinced that God wouldn't help me. Absolutely convinced. Even after that guy walked in and 12-step me, there's any amount of time before they'll either let me out of this hospital or somebody, something will happen and I'll be drinking again. I, when he came and 12-step me, I didn't believe I was going to get it. It didn't happen like that for me. I was hopeless. And uh, they sent me home from the hospital about three weeks later because it just, you know, it was very clear that I wasn't going to die. Um. There by then. And the insurance company says, any home you know, we're not going to keep putting the bill for him. And um, one time my body was paralyzed, like I had a stroke, one time my face on you down. And uh, my eye would say popped open all the time. And when I eat food would fall out of my mouth. And, uh, you know, and I needed help getting around. I couldn't drive a car. And, and you know, the, the, I think it was, the, I think it was actually the day that I got home from the hospital. I got home that morning and, and I was laying there thinking, uh, <laughs> thinking look what you did this time yeah you really done it up right smart guy look at you, you're, you're paralyzed you're physically destroyed, you're a wreck of a human being mentally you can't even, hardly put your name together I couldn't even speak I'd have a hard time getting the words out my brain is attached. still is but it's more apparent than, you know, hit the you'll know it still is um and I thought, yeah, well, you've really done it now, the girlfriend is coming. He said, see ya. I'm thinking, yeah, nice timing, thanks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the family, you know, my grandmother was really the only one I had left that had, that had anything left, and any reason she had anything left was because she just had to disbelieve that somehow God was coming to do something with me. You know, everybody, I'm not, I'm not saying the rest of them didn't love me, but I can remember her praying by my side, Praying. go back a minute. The night that I was laying on that bed with my brain scrambled back. My grandmother likes to tell the story on my anniversary whenever I let her talk. So I haven't done a real good job the last couple of years, but she's reminding me I need to shut up quicker.
1: <laughs>
0: she likes to tell the story of laying there, uh, watching me lay there, and, and walking up, putting her, her hand on my head, and asking God to do God's will. She said, you know, if it's your will. Heal not and let him be an example one way or another God he was like and in my arrogance in my early sobriety I thought the only prayer that mattered that night was my prayer to God with my petition with my plea I'm not through arrogance today because you know my grandmother is a, a woman of action a woman of faith she's got her shortcomings, but I'll tell you what when a rubber meets the road you know she never she never let up she never stopped believing and uh she put it to action. She went back, and she had a bunch of church people that shit there about action, too, like we are. And she got on the phone with them at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and they all started praying. And that priest that was there a couple hours later was from her church. There was a lot of people praying for this guy. laying the bed died. And I'm not so arrogant to stand up here tonight to think that my God doesn't hear their prayers, too. You know, maybe it was really their prayer. I'm not so arrogant to think that God doesn't listen to the prayer as well. And yeah. I pray a lot for other people in alcohols and nuns because I believe in God here. So, you know, I, I come to you all and I'm not convinced. I'm laying there and I'm thinking. Thinking. I've got all two, three weeks of sobriety now. Um, <laughs> the side of my head smashed in. Um, I'm looking at the rest of the life and wheelchair, the doctors are talking about, sewing my eyes shut so I don't go blind. I'm seeing a neurologist every week who's going,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, I mean, he was a little more educated in his response to my to my prognosis than that, but in general I'd go back and he'd look at the MRIs and the CAT scan and he'd go, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd get up every day and I'd look in that mirror and I'd know what paralysis was. I'd see it, hanging down. It was the destruction of a human being. It's empty. And about that time, when I'm laying there thinking, my grandmother said, there's some people here to see you. And uh, she gets me up out of out of our den, and I walk out, and there's four members from alcohols and mom that's at my doctor's table. My sponsor was the ringleader, as always. <laughs> <laughs> what got my attention was because, um, what got my attention was really the guys who were there that were sober three months, six months. I couldn't imagine nine years. God, it was an eternity. My sponsor's nine years was just, So unbelievable that I could get that. It was just an attorney for three months. Man, I had had three months before. I had had three months after I got out of the treatment center. And I tell you what, my eyes didn't look like that guy's eyes. I wasn't out trying to help somebody. I wasn't out making a difference in somebody's life. Because more than anything that they said was just the fact that they were there. I have. They took time out of their day for me. For what? Don't you know I'm hopeless? Don't you know this disease is going to kill me? How many times have you seen me come day and you're here? For what? See, I got hope not from somewhere inside. I didn't get hope from God laying his hand on me and touching me. I got hope from you all taking time out of your life that you believed that there was hope. I got hope from the outside in. That's my story in Alcoholics Anonymous. It hasn't come from the inside out. It's come from you all to me, through the love of one drunk for another. Those men cared more about me than I did. Those men believed more in God than I did. Those men demonstrated the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in a way that I had never seen before. And my prayers early on were not, you know, to God. They were really to God to thank him for putting these people in my life. We talked about that in the man coming up here because I didn't really know and have a relationship with God the way I have a relationship with God today. I needed someone to step in between. I needed someone to help bridge that gap between where I was and where God was. And the man that's going to follow me up here tonight I had a hell of a lot to
1: do it. So when you think about your sponsor,
0: if you don't Feel like you have some deep debt of gratitude in your heart for what they've done for me. and maybe you're either too self-centered, or maybe you better find out it. And I know he's not perfect, and I know he's not God, but boy, he sure as hell was the best thing that I had seen.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he sure as hell did help bridge that gap. And you know how he did it? He did it through showing me what he did. He didn't tell me what to do. He offered it to me and he said, just come along with us. Just get in the car. That's all you got to do is get in the car. I did. And what's happened? I became willing to do whatever he asked me to do. He said, these guys that are running around with us, they do the 12 steps. If you want what we have, you'll do the 12 steps. I said, okay. The first three were no big deal. We'll talk about those tomorrow um, i kind of figure you either got them or you don't and i felt like i probably had them before i'd probably have them before then but what i didn't do was follow them up with action in four and five and our book says that those decisions the third step was a vital and crucial step that wouldn't have it would have little permanent effect and that's what i lacked i didn't have any permanent effect i had 30 days maybe three months and that was it no permanent effect. The effect that I had was when I stood on the shores of the Severn River at the first spiritual retreat I'd ever been to and told this guy exactly who I was and the things I'd done and the places I had been and didn't hold anything back. And at the end of it all, he didn't tell me I was a rotten noob, but that's so big. He put his arms around me and told me that God loved me a great deal and welcomed Alcoholics And you know what? When I walked out of that, that fifth step, and I don't know how soon it was, I don't know if it was that day or a week after, but sometime, not long after that fifth step, you know what I started thinking? I might really stay. I was de unique That was, my friend Virginia, God love her, God rest her soul, but well, she's a beautiful woman, is a beautiful woman, she's touched so many of our lives. This old lady down in Pasadena, would, would see me coming in and out and would just hug me, and love me and she talked about being de unique She wasn't too bad for God anymore. And that's what this guy did for me. You know, Cause he's done the same things I had done to my surprise. He he sure didn't look like (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: tight.
0: He cleaned up pretty good. (laughs) And uh, I knew God loved him. And God worked in his life. And when I told him what I had done, he told me that he had done the same things. I thought maybe, just maybe, God worked in his life. Might work in mine. And that's when I began to get a personal relationship with God, because the wall had been removed. That great big wall had been removed through you. That's why we have to tell another person, because without that, there will always be a barrier there between me and God. But when another person knows exactly who I am, and that person doesn't run and hide, that person continues to love me, it affirms that God loves me from the outside in again, from the inside out. And what happened was God began to do some pretty incredible things in my life. And uh, not that I'm unique, but he was you know, pretty powerful. I went to that neurologist one day. First, was physically. You know, I went to the neurologist one day, and he stopped going, Ooh, and he went,
1: Ooh, Ooh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I swear this is what he said to me. He said, Dave, I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know what you're doing. Whatever you're doing, you keep doing He said, you're getting better. He said, it was like, it was like somebody put up a different CAT scan or something. And within a week, I wasn't paralyzed And I tell you what, you start, pr- and I knew what I had been doing. I've been praying, and that'll get your attention. You know? God says, okay, boom, you're not paralyzed. Like, whoa, hey! that this, that was good stuff, you know? <laughs> My sponsor reminded me that I wasn't about to walk on water or, you know, raise any dead people yet, you know? Calm down, that, you know, God does these kind of things for normal people, too, you know? <laughs> I went on with the steps. Um, I made amends the best I could. Mostly to my family, and, and, and really those amends will continue for the rest of my life. Amends to the family can scarcely be made in a lifetime. I got some one going right now with a couple grandparents that I lived with and tortured for a long time. And I say what the best amends that I make to them today is I live less than 100 feet from their front door. And when my little boy and my little girl go running out of the door, they make a right turn and they go over on their You know, this stuff would happen if it wasn't for alcohol, not, you know. And the miracles didn't stop with being unparalyzed. That was physical. Let me talk a little bit about mental. I had um, heard of a, a woman speaker in hey say once that she was in college, and, and she got to the point where she had so many withdrawals on her transcript that her transcript looked like an Indian rug from all the Ws, you know. <laughs> and and that's kind of what my, you know, I was great at quitting before I failed. And uh, I I got unparalyzed at about three months, and that was right about the time the school was starting. And my sponsor actually listened sometimes to what I'd say. And he said, "Uh, you were in college before, weren't you? And I said, yeah, Tom. He said, well, why don't you go back? I said, oh, you don't understand. You don't understand. See, I'm going back into the junior year of an engineering curriculum at a state university. And, man, you know, I I don't know if I could have made it before. And now my whole side of my head caved, and I can hardly speak. I I don't know about going back to this university in the middle of his junior year. And he said, well, what else are you going to do? And he had a good point there. I really <laughs> didn't have a game plan. I just got unparalyzed. I didn't really have time to formulate a game plan, thank God. And uh, he said, go back. And he said, ask that guy that you've been asking to help keep you from taking a drink to help you with school. Um, and I went back. And I started doing what you all. This is my first example. This, what you all taught me in alcohol synonymous works in real life, I started showing up. Like, when there was class. You know, just like when there was an AA I'd get there early and I'd sit up front, you know? And if I needed help, I'd, I'd ask for it a- and I'd stay late. And, and, you know, just like an AA, I found a group that seemed like to be winners. Like, and so I kind of went up and just asked them, hey, can I sort of be part of your group? And, you know, to my surprise, they didn't say, no, get away, you scourge of the earth wrong. You know, um, you know, they said, sure. You know, and, and so I started hanging around. And bottom line is that um, a guy who, who, whose brain was destroyed you know, wound up graduating a couple of years later from this from this university, um, the outstanding graduating senior, you know, with top honors. Um, go figure, you know. And my grandparents, who had who had held my hand and, and watched me die, only two years before, got to got to take part in my my recovery and, and, and the good things that happened in my life. Things like, you know, I got inducted into a, a national engineering honor society of my Beginning of my senior year, and uh, they got to go down to University you know, of Maryland College Park and, and stand there, you know, while I was inducted into the same honor society that, you know, Lehigh Cope a lot of, you know, big name engineers, and I see the look of pride in their eyes, and I'm saying about me, don't get me wrong, I'm talking about the power that lies here, the power to take a guy laying in the hospital bed, more dead than alive, the guy who's completely destroyed in every area of his life, and, and puts him on the stage of life, and makes him a player. and takes the damage and the wreckage of my alcoholism and begins to take the power of sobriety and recovery. And I didn't transform my life, but transform the people that are close to me, transform their lives, give them hope. I began to watch hope come back into their eyes, and I stood up and celebrated my year anniversary and looked out of the front row and saw my family. You know, I'll never forget that. Yeah, there are things that I'll take with me the rest of my life that I'll never forget moments. And that's one of them. You know, look out and see the look, the, the tears of joy, tears of pride and the tears of hope. Maybe this is it. Look at it. God works. My grandmother's faith is stored. You know, she was lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> and uh, that same college that I, when I went back, I, they put me on academic probation. I was on all kind of probation when I came in. I had probation from the law. I was on girlfriend prob. She had, she had left, but she later let me back. She was on. I was on probation with her for a while, and uh, and I was on probation at the college. I was on all kind of probation when I got back here. And that same college asked me to stay and do some graduate work. And a couple of years after I got the bachelor's degree, I got a master's degree. And I was convinced that wouldn't happen. And then they asked me to stay and do the last last degree that they had left to offer me. And, uh, I got all done that, and, and I wasn't making it. I was about ready to quit, and uh, my sponsor and I had to, had a talking when I was about halfway through my bachelor's degree. I quit, and I put the argument forward of how bad my brain damage had been, and you know uh, how hopeless it was that I would get a degree, and, and that really ought to quit now, you know, and save us the embarrassment and the financial, you know, burden on my family and on myself. And, and he said no. He said we don't quit in alcoholism the principle either to make it or you don't bottom line it's okay to fail it's okay to fail but you don't quit and uh, I got near the end of my PhD and it just wasn't happening I just didn't have it I knew I didn't have it I was giving it everything everything I had 100 hour weeks week after week after week
1: you know God it's not
0: happening and I went to him one more time I said it's not happening I said well either make it or you won't. And so I kept showing up and kept doing the footwork and one day it was just done. And I know it wasn't me that did it. Just one day it was just like everything fell into place and it was done. You know. And to the guy that brain was destroyed is now a PhD. And the kind of power here. The last thing I want to talk to you about is spiritually. What's happened spiritually. I told totally you what I brought here. Bankrupt human beings. Empty on the inside. That's a soul. I believe if there's anything that our disease is, it is a soul thing. Whatever else it may be, that is core. That's what brings us here. That's what kills us. That puts us in the ground. What you all have taught me about is you've taught me about God. You know, I found out that I'm not different from the other people that walk the face of this earth, whether they're alcoholic or not. I found out and... My heart and my soul that God's loving me. And if he loves me, he must love you. And it really that my job here, on the face of this earth, is to try to do my best. To try to do what he would have me do. He's happened to make me kind of uniquely qualified to sort of work with drums. You know, that's sort of been my gift. Uh, I go to church, but that's not where I find my purpose in life. I find my purpose in life when I stand here with you. I find my purpose in life when I see God working every day. in We don't. We, those of us who've been here for a while, I think sometimes we forget. I took a. I got a real good perspective on that. I took this spiritual gifts class that our church offers, and and what the purpose was was to try to identify what it is that you want spiritually, and try to help you get there. And and I went there really trying to figure out how best to serve the church. And what I walked away with was. Complete gratitude that Alcoholics Anonymous had given me what everybody else in that room was looking for—a purpose and a value in life. A purpose and a value in life, and I'm talking about professional people who were really wanting to try to help somebody, just didn't know how. And I walked away from there just, just amazed at what God had given me, and completely convinced that my direction was—you know—not to get more involved in the church, was 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 Alcoholics Anonymous was my path. That's what I've been given. Let me tell you about a couple stories real quick about God. And I'll talk about God not just in me, but in you. George. Sponsored this guy, George. George's an ex-boxer. And just as mean and violent and angry when he got here as they come. Hated everybody. Wanted to beat up everybody. Even Tom. He even wanted to beat up Tom. <laughs> and he would tell me that, you know, when he come home, Early on it is his kids were still he had three children, the youngest of which was a boy named Curtis. And the Curtis would run from him. Curtis was four or five years old. Curtis was scared to death of his father. And he would tell me how it would break his heart to see his son run in fear when he walked into her because his son wasn't sure who he'd be when he walked in the You're so walking to George's anniversary. Sitting on his lap. <laughs>
1: Curtis.
0: five years old, bright eyes and a smile on his face, telling his father that he was proud of him and he loved him. How do, you, how do you put a value on that? How do, you, how do I express to you what that does to your spirit? God touches us through others. When I saw that, I knew that God had used me. I knew. Not that I was the, the power, but I got to be part of the channel that got George Sober. And through God's the Great, I saw his hand being healed. And then I watched him go on, carried on down. Not that long ago, another young guy that I sponsored celebrated his anniversary, he's just like me. the a nut, you know, he's sober a couple years, and, you know, up one minute and down the next. but man, he's trying. And his mother came up to me after his anniversary and tears in her eyes. just this.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: How do I explain to you what that does to know that lives are changed on a daily basis? And that you get to be part of it. You know, if you don't know, God, please come along with us. Please find this thing the way I found it, the way it's been passed on. From my sponsor to me, I know he knows, and I know there's a lot of you in here that do. But that is the core and the heart of this thing is to see God work miracles day in and day out. The ancient miracle is not dead, it's what is here now. And I'm going to read one thing and then I'm going to shut up. Um, it's out of uh, a, a member's eye view of Albaugh Mountain pamphlet. And uh, I read this at my second anniversary long before I knew that there were other people who were popular speakers who read it. <laughs> Ray O'Keefe likes to read this all the time. (laughs) But it's A-approved literature, so it's free. I can use it, too. And it really fits the way I felt when I was there for two years, and it really fits the way that I feel tonight. It says, "In In this coming Sunday in the churches of many of us, there will be read that portion of the Gospel of Matthew, which recounts the time when John the Baptist was languishing in the prison of Herod. In hearing of the works of his cousin Jesus, he sent two disciples to say to him, Art thou he who has come? Or shall we look for another? And Christ did as he so often did. He did not answer them directly, but wanted John to decide for himself. And so he said to the disciples, go and report to John what you have heard and what you have seen. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead rise. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. I was taught that the poor in this instance did not mean any of the poor in a material sense, but also meant the poor in spirit. Those who burned with an inner hunger and inner thirst And the word gospel quite literally meant the good news Tonight if if they were to ask me Tell us what did you find here in Alcoholics Anonymous I would say to them what I say to you now I can tell you any what I have heard And what I have seen It seems the blind do see The lame do walk the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and most certainly the dead do rise. And over and over again, in the middle of the longest day and the darkest night, the poor in spirit have the good news told to them. God grant that it may always be so. Thank you. <laughs>